I invite you, uh, if you're remaining, uh, to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our goal is to finish the chapter and to understand uh, as much of this as we can. Someone asked me uh, this afternoon, do you have everything figured out about the chapter? And uh, said, you know, I think there's some things I'm going to be wondering the whole way till we get to heaven. Uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, good things here uh, in the text. Did I hear that the Hickok family is here somewhere? It's so good to have you here. Unannounced, this is like an audit, right? You're coming just to, uh, to uh, check up on us. We're excited you're here. Are you doing all right? Okay, make sure you see our, our missionary family, the Hickoks, tonight. Uh, if you get a chance to after the service, that would be great. So, um, as we uh, look at 2 Thessalonians today, uh, we were in chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we considered uh, what Paul said about a Thessalonian dilemma. Um, although they had not known Christ for very long, they were suffering under severe persecution, and uh, someone sent them a fake letter or stood up in one of their church meetings and issued a prophetic utterance claiming to be from God, but it was misleading because this person said that the church was experiencing judgment connected to the day of the Lord. And of course, I uh, tried to uh, communicate to you when we were in 1 Thessalonians that the day of the Lord I see is primarily a time of great, significant judgment in the end times. So Thessalonian believers were experiencing some difficult things, and because of this false report, they thought they were in the day of the Lord. So after uh, just mentioning that in verses 1 and 2, Paul takes verses 3 through 7 that we looked at today to immediately correct their false theology because false theology normally produces bad fruit, bad behavior. Or the way we think affects the way we live. You can look at Philippians 4, 7 and 8 sometime and see the connection between thinking and living. And so Paul corrects their false theology in those verses. Uh, what I want to pick up tonight are the second, uh, is the second section. Two, there are two more parts, okay? Two more points we're going to make tonight from verse 8 through the end of the chapter. And so uh, in verses 8 through 12, we see uh, the third movie, a Thessalonian dilemma, an immediate correction, and then three, an upcoming encounter, okay? Technically, we're still in the first paragraph, so let's look in our Bibles at verse 8. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powerful or with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul here in these verses will give a description, uh, a, a description of a brief encounter that the lawless one, the son of destruction, will have with Jesus. Now, neither Paul's description nor the encounter itself will take very long. It won't last long. 
It's like a, uh, you know, it's, it's like the, you know, the heavyweight fight that doesn't even last more than a punch. We're going to see this doesn't even last that long, okay? In this passage, what I found again in 2 Thessalonians 2, and I just saw it this afternoon actually, is that Paul will go back and forth describing the way that both Jesus and God the Father react to the lawless one. If you remember in chapter 1, I said that uh, Paul was talking about the persecutors of the church in Thessalonica. And in his discussion of what would happen, he said God the Father would do something to them and that Jesus Christ would also do something to these persecutors. He would inflict vengeance. Remember this? So he went back and forth between God the Father's rule and Jesus Christ's rule. What I saw today is in chapter 2, when discussing the lawless one and the punishment that he's going to face, he does the same thing. He tells us in verse 9 what Jesus will do. Uh, and then, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 8 what Jesus will do. And then verses 9 through 12, he gets to the point of what God will do, especially in verses 11 and 12. And so he starts by telling us uh, that when this encounter happens, uh, Jesus will destroy the lawless one with his breath. Look at verse 8 again. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this text all starts with Jesus and what he's going to do to this great lawless one who's the enemy of God. The text says it very clearly that when Jesus appears, he will kill the lawless one. He will do away with this man. And the way that Paul describes it in this one verse, in verse 8, it, I think he emphasizes both the duration and the ease with which Jesus will do this. You can see that first in the phrase, he will kill him with the breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. This demonstrates, I think, the ease with which Jesus will destroy the Antichrist at his coming, with the breath of his mouth, with one exhale. No other physical action is required. Uh, Jesus will destroy him. With this phrase, the breath of his mouth, I think that Jesus is likely appealing to an Old Testament text. We won't take the time to turn back there, but you could write down the reference and look it up this week. The text is Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, uh, Isaiah says that a prince from David's line will come in the future and will strike the earth with the word of his mouth and with the breath of his lips and destroy the ungodly. That text is about a future Davidic king who will do that. And that text joins an Old Testament tradition that describes the breath of the Lord as something very strong. It's powerful. It will accomplish its purposes. And so at Christ's return, I think at the end of the tribulation, he will thoroughly defeat the lawless one and punish him completely. That uh, also then uh, gets to the place where we see the timing of this encounter. Look again in verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
I think that that last phrase not only describes, uh, again, the, the ease with which Jesus will kill the Antichrist, but also tells us a little bit about the timing, the timing of this encounter. This defeat will occur at the appearance of his coming, the text says. Now, one of the interesting things I'll point out to you here is I think that for whatever reason, I don't know why, Paul the Apostle is using poetic parallelism here in these two phrases. If you were to look at them in the original, even as you read them in the English translation, the ESV here, I think you can pick up the uh, parallelism between the phrases, the breath of his mouth and the appearance of his coming. They're exactly parallel. And that second phrase, uh, Paul doesn't even need to use both words because they're roughly synonymous, appearance and coming. So I think he's, he's just describing these in very parallel ways. When he describes the appearance of Jesus' coming here, from my perspective, I think he's describing the second coming of Jesus, which, uh, according to uh, our doctrinal statement, we would see as containing two phases or having two phases to it. The second coming of Jesus has a rapture that occurs before the tribulation and a return that happens at the end of the tribulation. Okay, so when you talk about the coming of Jesus, you could be describing the rapture when he gets to the church or you could be describing seven years later when he returns to the earth to set up the millennial kingdom. It's that second one, I think, that he's describing here. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will come back and he will thoroughly defeat the lawless one, the Antichrist, and punish him completely. That's what I think verse 8 is describing to us. But then in verses 9 through 12, God is going to also act in relation to the lawless one and those who are his followers. This leads Paul in verses 9 and 10 to retrace the ministry of the lawless one a bit. He already had Jesus uh, annihilating him or destroying him. But then in verses 9 and 10, he kind of rehearses this and he gives two final, destruction, or, uh, uh, two final descriptions of this lawless one. Uh, he first is energized by Satan throughout his activity and work on this, this planet. The way Paul describes this is... Uh, in a very interesting way. Look at the beginning of verse 9. It says, the coming of the lawless one. Um, what's interesting to me is that Paul describes this lawless one when he appears in very parallel ways to the way he described, and New Testament authors describe the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. He uses the same word here, the coming of the lawless one. He then says that the lawless one uh, his coming will be confirmed by the activity of Satan with all power and signs and wonders. And those three words are also often used to describe the first appearing of Jesus when he came. He came with uh, power, signs, and wonders. But there's a very important adjective that Paul adds here. He, he adds the word false, pseudo. These are fake signs and wonders, uh, or these are signs and wonders meant to delude. And so he describes this lawless one as coming very much or in the same fashion as Jesus came. 
But this one is empowered by Satan with these false deeds and works and actions. The text also says that Satan will energize the appearing of the lawless one so that those who are perishing will be deceived. Look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception. So Satan's going to help him to use all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Okay, then I think it's a mark of judgment upon them. Here's the reason. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. I think that the truth he's describing here must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way someone is saved. These people who uh, join an alliance with the lawless one in the end times, they refuse to believe the truth, that's the gospel, and be saved. And so Satan sends this very strong deception uh, to get to them. But in verses 11 and 12, what you see is that Satan is not the only one active in the text here. Verse 11 says, therefore God does something. God, the text says, sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here the text says, God, the Father, sends unbelievers who are joined in alliance with the lawless one a strong delusion. And here's another phrase that has caused people to speculate much throughout the history of interpretation. Uh, this morning we looked at a few difficult ones, didn't we? Uh, we saw the restrainer. We saw the lawless one. We tried to identify some of these things. This strong delusion, God sending a strong delusion, has been the object of a lot of debate and question. Here, I think what he's doing, what Paul is telling us here, is that God is going to seal the fate of those who hate the gospel and are joined to the lawless one by sending a strong, deluding influence upon them. More specifically, God will punish those who rejected the truth of the gospel before so that they continue to believe false things, remain convinced by this lawless one, and remain condemned in their sins. Some reason, as I was reading through this strong delusion, I couldn't help but think of Romans chapter 1, where in that chapter there were people who reject God. They reject even the idea of God. They don't reserve a place for him in worship. And so the text says God gives them over. You remember this text? gives them over, gives them up to all sorts of baser passions and lets them have their way. In this text, though, it seems to be maybe even a little bit more active. God's not just giving them up as lost people, dead in trespasses and sins. He also sends uh, a delusion to them so that they will not come to a knowledge of the truth. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected uh, offers of the gospel before, and so... Uh, God will punish them in this way. And God's purpose in doing so, just to be clear in the text, okay, if you don't like what I'm saying, then you don't like this text. God's purpose is that all those who reject him would be condemned. One man says it well. He says, the goal of God sending this strong or powerful working to unbelievers is their delusion or deception. 
And so what we've seen in verses 8 through 12 is this is how the Godhead responds to the activity of the lawless one and those who would join forces with him. God deludes his followers, and Jesus utterly consumes this lawless one with his breath. Okay? And that leads us to the conclusion of the chapter. Now, honestly, a lot of people who look at verses 13 through 17, they don't necessarily connect it to the passage before very much. But I think that this forms the fourth part of this section, which is what I call a fitting conclusion. A fitting conclusion. And actually, I think it's very important to consider these verses tonight as a part of what Paul's saying about this, this lawless one who's going to be destroyed by Jesus. Because I think Paul's main point in the whole section comes out at the end. His main point is found, I believe, in the imperatives or commands in verse 15. When he says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. If you remember early on in the passage, Paul says that there was a person who came and wrote a letter to them to disturb them and that they were shaken in their mind. You remember that description? They were shaken in their mind and they were frightened. And so what Paul is concerned pastorally for the Thessalonians is that they are greatly distressed and they are completely unstable in their walk with the Lord. And so what we see at the end is Paul is calling them to stand firm and hold tightly to the apostolic traditions that he had given to them. This is his main point. As a matter of fact, I think the entire conclusion, uh, including a thanksgiving, a prayer, and an appeal, is about Christian stability. Christian stability. And stability is very important. It's important for Christians. I think it's, it's something we all crave. And if you think about life and just every facet of life, Stability is something that's important to most areas of science, research, and even politics. In science, elements are stable when they're not subject to decay or to decomposition. That's a stable element. In politics, leaders strive for stability, do they not? They make promises of it. They strive for stability in relationships with foreign powers. They strive for promises, you know, promises for financial stability. Matter of fact, in our own country, I think often the person who's elected is the person who, who uh, we're most confident in as a nation who would give us financial stability. One of the guiding premises for us in a country in construction, builders strive to build stable buildings. Now, I don't know much about building, but I know that your building needs to be stable. The trusses need to be stable. The walls need to be stable. What kind of house would it be if you, if you didn't have stable walls? Carpenters, they try to build stable furniture. Okay, most of the things I ever build, they start falling apart almost immediately. Carpenters, stable furniture. Vehicles, aircrafts, ships, I think, I, I've heard uh, just in one of our tours lately that ships have stabilizers to, con to con secure 
the vessel from being compromised. In life, stability is a noble and often a coveted quality as well. Yet, we don't find much stability in our world today. And as we consider the Thessalonians themselves as believers, they were shaken. They were not stable. So Paul writes this conclusion to uh, point them in that way. I think the conclusion has three parts. Verses 13 and 14, he thanks God for marks of stability. He offers a thanksgiving. Look at verse 13. We can go quickly through this. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul says here it's fitting for him to thank God for them, uh, those believers who were frightened by fake letters and threatened by severe persecution uh, because they were continuing on in their walk with God. So Paul's specifically thankful here. Two parallel things he's thankful for. Paul's thankful that God chose them and that he called them. The text says that God chose them unto salvation through or by the Spirit's sanctification and belief in the truth. This is the means by which God, is, God has chosen them and salvation will be accomplished through the Spirit's sanctification, their belief in the truth. And secondly, he's thankful that God calls them unto the obtaining of Christ's glory through the gospel. More specifically in this text, Uh, They were chosen, the text says, to be, or as a kind of first fruits of those who are being saved. If you look down in your Bible at uh, verse 13, depending on what version you're reading, you might see a textual variant. It's reflected in some of your Bibles. Uh, Verse 13 in ESV says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. Now, some Greek manuscripts have a one-letter difference here, and it could also be translated, and in some of your Bibles it would be translated this way, that they were chosen, instead of as the first fruits, it'd be from the beginning. From the beginning. Either one is possible. Um, I think it probably, there's maybe a little stronger case for Paul describing them as being chosen as first fruits, like the ESV uh, has here. Um, so in Paul's mind, the Thessalonian believers were the beginning of a harvest of believers either in that city or in the surrounding region. Okay, And I think that this is going to encourage them towards perseverance in the faith. Thessalonian believers, you have to think this, this young group of believers is going through all sorts of persecution all sorts of struggles and trials, and so now Paul's going to remind them that they're just the first fruits. They're the beginning of a harvest of people that God is going to save, I think, in Thessalonica or in their city. I like how Gordon Fee described this. I'll read it to you. He says, if the believing community is, is relatively small and currently heavily persecuted, they need to hear from the divine perspective. That is, from the perspective of God. God's having chosen them for salvation, 
that there is still more, even from among their own townspeople, who will join them for obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that even in this thanksgiving, uh, it is designed by Paul to encourage the Thessalonians in their walk with God. They are the first fruits. There's more coming. More people will be converted. I think that this encouragement will, 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 will push them towards stability in their walk with the Lord. Now, near the end of this Thanksgiving, verses 13 and 14, he reminds them that they've been called so that eventually they would obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we walk through that text, I kind of struggled with you know, figuring this out a, a little bit. I think the obtaining of, of glory that Paul's talking about here is definitely related to Jesus. Somehow or another, what we obtain in glory is, is related to him. But, uh, but it seems to me, after having studied it this week, that uh, what Paul is saying is that Jesus, of course, is already glorified. He's ascended to heaven. He's glorified. And one day he will appear in glory. And you could read about some of his glorious appearings in this text. And I think that the point that Paul is making is when he appears, like John says, we will be like him. I think of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 here. Philippians 3, 21, Paul says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. There in that text, I think it might help us here with, with, with understanding what does he mean when he describes that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that he's saying that, and he's speaking of the reception that believers will have one day of glorified bodies that look much like our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and so as we're working through the thanksgiving, he's thanking God and he's reminding them, eventually, you know, you were the first fruits, but eventually one day you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will inherit glorified bodies. I think this is pushing them toward stability in the trials that they face. That's when, in verse 15, he makes an appeal to them. He gives them two commands Look at the verse. It says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. We'll go quickly through this, but standing firm is a typical Pauline expression. It's a very important admonition to New Testament believers, often given in many of the epistles. Stand firm. Okay, and again, I've already told you why in this context it's important for the Thessalonians. The second one, hold fast to the traditions. In my opinion, it is Paul explaining the means whereby someone will stand firm. So you can either have them as like two separate commands, stand firm and hold the traditions, or you could translate it like this, stand firm by holding on to the apostolic traditions that we've imparted to you. And I think that that might be what Paul is doing here. This is Paul's recipe then for Christian stability. The road to Christian stability is to cling closely to the truth as taught and written down by the apostles and now given to us 
in the word. Okay, so Paul is telling them, you, what, you, what you need to do is you need to hold firm. How do you do that? Uh, or stand firm. How do you do that? By holding fast to the truth that you have learned from us, the traditions that you were taught. Either by Paul's spoken teaching or by the letters that he's written to them. And that leads us finally to Paul's prayer. Again, I think the whole conclusion is about stability. Verses 13 and 14, he thanks God for marks of stability in their life. Verse 15, he appeals for it directly. Stand firm, you know, be stable. And here he prays and he asks God to make them firm. You see that in verse 17 when you get to the end of this text. May, may God comfort your hearts and establish. See the, the stability. And establish them, your hearts, in every good work indeed. But let's look at this passage, this prayer. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work indeed. Here Paul prays for God to do this, produce the stability in them. Uh, I found it interesting to me that chapter 2 ends with prayer and chapter 3 begins with prayer. That's why actually a lot of commentators put these verses together and treat them as one. But I think it's better to see what, that Paul, at the end of chapter 2, is ending a section by praying for what he's told them to do. So in chapter 2, he's been uh, dealing with the way the Thessalonians were misunderstanding the end times and how that was producing instability in their walk with the Lord. And so Paul prays that they would be stable. He ends a major section by praying for the topic that he's been addressing to them. Then when you move to chapter 3 that we'll look at in just uh, our, our next time together, uh, he prays specifically for the second major subject in the letter, and that has to do with the way that they were treating a disobedient believer who was lazy. And so before Paul even gets into that topic, he prays for it. And I I think it'd be good to just stop for a moment and consider the impulse of Paul here. As he's dealing with the two major sections in the letter, as he ends one about confusion regarding the end times, and he begins another about how to deal with a lazy brother, he, he ends and he starts in prayer for these believers. His prayer at the end of chapter 2 starts with a subtle tribute to the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice he prays at the beginning, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. That is a very unique expression for the Apostle Paul. Something to be basically unheard of, of course, to Jewish people that you would ever put in the same line, the same prayer, God the Father and anyone else, or Yahweh God for them, Yahweh God and anyone else. What I found very interesting here is that Paul even kind of ups it a bit, his commitment to the deity of Jesus Christ, by putting Jesus first. Gives him primacy of place. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. He addresses them both as deity. It's a tribute to the full deity of Jesus. 
he then describes both Jesus and God's, as God the Father as the ones who have already given the Thessalonians eternal comfort and good hope through grace. I found it interesting as I studied these expressions, I think many of those words are just very clear, and you can get them, eternal comfort, good hope through grace. But the, the adjective eternal stuck out to me as you, as you look at that in this text. The last time we saw eternal was a description of the type of punishment lost people face. They face eternal punishment. What we have been given by the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father is eternal. That is unending and inexhaustible comfort that goes beyond, for the Thessalonians, just their present crisis. The whole way, whole way through the end. And this is what we have as well. As we work through these texts, we're struck with the amazing power of God. I just love the text, don't you? It says in this passage we looked at tonight that with one breath, one breath of his mouth, he thoroughly and utterly defeats the lawless one. We can rejoice in that together tonight, and we, we can take great comfort. Perhaps in some way or another, this has not been a solid week for you. Maybe you've struggled with instability in your walk with the Lord. Paul writes these things and reminds the Thessalonians that they would not be shaken in mind or alarmed or frightened. By the way, if your understanding of the Scripture, something in the New Testament, your theology in some way frightens you, I don't know that that's a right theology normally, unless you're an unbeliever. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and Him and His righteousness, uh, and you're frightened by some theology, I would encourage you to talk with a pastor so that we can look at that script, we can look at that theology and see if it's accurate and true. But as we go through this text, I, I think Paul would have us abandon this strong fear about the future and what may or may not happen. Strong fear about the conditions we find ourselves in our culture and even our own country. And instead, have faith and believe that with one word, actually less than that one breath of Jesus' mouth, he will thoroughly defeat this one. Let's close in a word of prayer. And I think I'm going to have you stand with me uh, to close in prayer. Uh, we will sing one song. I was just looking. I get confused. We have time to sing. I like to sing. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll sing one song as we close. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity you've given to us to be in your word again today. I thank you for how encouraging it is to see how Paul the Apostle was able to encourage his Thessalonian brothers and sisters. Lord, I know that Christian instability does not only describe people of former generations, it can describe us. There may be some of my brothers or sisters in the Lord tonight under the sound of my voice that uh, have really not had a good week, who have struggled in different ways, were fearful or discouraged in their walk with you. I pray that our reflection tonight upon the power and the splendor of our Jesus 
who will bring to nothing the lawless one just by appearing at his coming and who will kill him with the breath of his mouth. May, may his power and his splendor be encouraging to us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.